0: Recent studies indicate that the average American teenager is spending between seven to nine hours a day in front of a screen. Even if our own children are not that media consumed, technology for us as adults, and for our students and children, is an inevitable part of life. And too often, our way of mitigating this influence is by way of how many filters and controls can we implement. And while that is important, my guest today, Tony Rinke, provides a thoughtful and thorough examination of our relationship with technology and the underlying theology and scripture that we should be using to choose how to live well the Christian life in our digital age. Tony's observations are both realistic and hopeful as he makes practical recommendations for how we live in the technology world, but not be of it. Join me for this episode of Basecamp Live. mountains. We all face them as we seek to influence the next generation. Get equipped to conquer the challenges, summit the peak, and shape exceptionally thoughtful, compassionate, and flourishing human beings. We call it ancient future education for raising the next generation. Welcome to Basecamp Live. Now your host, Davies Owens. Welcome to Basecamp Live. So grateful for your time, A faithful listener. It is always good to hear from you. It means a lot to me. Send me an email, info at basecamplive.com. Where are you listening from? What's on your mind? A special thank you to our sponsors for this episode the Focus Group, Classical Academic Press, and the CLT, the Classic Learning Test. My guest today, Tony Rinke, has been on Basecamp Live before. Back in 2019, discussing his book, Competing Spectacles, Treasuring Christ in the Media Age. If you didn't hear that episode, I encourage you to go back and give it a listen. Tony is a journalist, a senior teacher, and host of the Ask Pastor John podcast for DesiringGod.org. He's an author, a writer, a speaker. He's most recently written Lit a Christian Guide to Reading Books and the Competing Spectacle books, which I just mentioned to you, as well as the book, The Twelve Ways Your Phone is changing you. Today, he's here to talk about his newest book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, which just came out here in 2022. Join me for this episode with Tony Rinky. Well, Tony Rinky, welcome back to Basecamp Live. It's a privilege to have you on. Yes, good to be back. Well, you know, the the reality is we live in this age, especially as classical Christian folks, parents and and um, educators, that technology, we kind of have this love-hate with it. It seems to mm-hmm. be something that we we claim that we uh, want to be very careful of, and yet we generally find ourselves embracing it fully. And I love your book. Um, we're here to talk about your, your new book, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, and the fact that you've really provided first ever, I think, a step back to let's look at more than just filters and tips and tricks— John Piper's endorsement says it all. He says the book is panoramic, is panoramic and penetrating. He says, I doubt there has ever been a more sweeping treatment of technology so firmly tethered to Scripture and therefore so realistic and hopeful. Why did you write this book, This Theology of Technology?
1: Yeah, I mean, the big picture is, you know, for about a century now, the church's theologians have uh, implied or explicitly said that faith and technology don't belong in the same conversation. You know, human innovation is Babel-like, it's worldly, it's wicked, it's tainted top to bottom by sin, it's destructive. And so whenever you speak of human tech, just leave God out of the conversation. And that's largely what Christians have done for about a century now. And now we find ourselves in the um, most technologically advanced age the world has ever seen. Many Christians live inside the tech centers. Uh, major tech centers, and now the church is not surprisingly at a loss for words, and and so there's a growing desire to ask whether we got this right. Or maybe we lost something along the way. Maybe we sold God short over the past century, and perhaps we have lost sight of his incredible generosity to us today and um, presume upon his gifts and take them for granted when we should live with gratitude for the 10,000 innovations that we use every single day, not to mention the layers of, of technology that we're using right now to speak, to communicate, to record, to broadcast. I mean, I bet there's listeners right now who... You know, found this MP3 and sucked it out of the air into an iPhone. And now they're driving down the street in the, you know, commanding a fireball in the engine with the right foot, you know, and like there's, there's like just layers and layers of technological advance that we use every single day. And we just have no categories for generosity to the God who coded them into the created order. And so. Um, I do think this has been a big problem for the church over the past century. And I think that became again, I'm speaking sort of bigger terms here, but I think that became a real big problem when the world wars began in like 1913. Even now, you know, with um, uh, what's happening in Russia, it makes it really hard to have these kind of conversations where we talk about gratitude for the smartphone, gratitude for the computer chip. Gratitude for the nuclear power that I'm using right now to communicate here in the city of Phoenix. It's very hard to have those conversations because uh, what what gets the headlines are the scary tech. And that's been the case for the last hundred years. And so the conversation about common grace, which was really, um, really a fruitful conversation a hundred years ago um, as the church earlier than that, between eighteen, you know, 70, 1873 to 1913, roughly, was the greatest uh, technological watershed moment of human history. And the church was right there saying, what is this? What do we do with it? Um, what part of it is God glorifying? What do we need to reject? And that was all part of the conversation of common grace, which came out of John Calvin and the reformers, but then really found its ultimate flourishing in Herman, uh, Herman Bobbing and Abraham Kuyper in particular in the Netherlands um, in that age. And and so I went back to those categories and just said, I wonder if, if the categories of common grace apply to 2022 Silicon Valley. And I, I really do mm. think that they do. And so that's what became this book is a uh, biblical theology of technology and sort of taking a new fresh look at to what the church's relationship to human in- innovation is. Yeah.
0: Well, and it, it to your very point, this is this is something that's a gift. It's positive, and I think it's very easy. Again, in our, especially in classical Christian school circles, I know of leaders in our movement that sort of pride themselves that they use a, a flip phone in an age of a smartphone, and aren't they sort of holding the line? And it it, it becomes, I think, very uh, unfortunate because it is a gift and uh, uh, from God. One of the one of the things that stood out to me in the book is you reference uh, uh, Professor Donald. Uh, uh the trade this this idea of, of kind of this propositional question that you could either uh, live today sort of middle class with all of the technical uh, offerings that we have or you could go back to 1916 and be john d rockefeller with the equivalent of 23 billion dollars and the argument seems to be most people would still choose to live today even with that much back then because of all the benefits
1: a hundred percent yeah i mean it, it you know, I have a lot of friends who are, you know, they, they're anti-tech and they've got a SUV and a smartphone and like <laughs> they want, to, they want, they want contradictions. this aura. Yeah, yeah, they want this like, you know, they sound Amish in how they talk and then they right. live like a t- traditional, you know, uh, Midwestern or a middle class Western uh, American. And so there's uh, I want to help alleviate that tension that people feel in thinking to be godly means you have to be anti-tech. And that's just uh, that's just a, 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 an overly simplistic view of how God relates to the cities of man, which is essentially what uh, biblical theology of technology is. Is it's basically just the the story of God's relationship to human city building, which is a complex story. And that's basically what I try to uh, unveil in the book. Is, is that uh, that? But to to make it more practical, I mean, um, I I really appreciate the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma where you have you know, people on there warning about do the algorithms make us do things, the apps make us do things. Silicon Valley has these biases and bents that push us in certain directions. And I think that's right. Unfortunately, I think that that's where the conversation in the church sort of ends is sort of we've externalized the problem. Like, if I don't have a smartphone, I won't sin. If I don't use that app, I won't sin. And, and so we've sort of externalized, made the scapegoat of technology and said, well, if I don't have that tech, that I won't be sitting in that way and it just fails to understand the fact that the reason why algorithms um, are so addictive is because they're appealing to some inner sinful longing and desire that I have inside of my own heart that must also be dealt with and I think this is what we talked about last time in 2019 is my books 12 ways your phone is changing you and competing spectacles looked at how does this mass media age and the social media age appeal to the inner sinful longings and desires within my own heart. And so that's kind of where the conversa- conversation has to go is that second stage, not just the Netflix stage one, the algorithm made me do it, but then step two um, is appealing to sinful longings within me that have to be addressed. And then that, w- when I started to think through that, I realized what's next in the docket then is to write a book about tech gratitude. And about all these gifts that God has given me. Because now once I have a vision for the sinful uses of technologies, and once I see the susceptibilities of my own heart in those those technologies and what they can do to me, once I expose those, then I start to see all the generosity of God in the tens of thousands of innovations I use every single day. And then what that did is it opened up a stage four, which I wasn't expecting. And that is tech stewardship. So now, you know, aware of the biases in tech, aware of the sinful inclinations inside of me, uh, now I can behold God's generosity in his gifts, and tech now can conform to my calling and inform how I use and how I parent technology in my home. Namely, I can now steward my kids, I can now uh, help my kids learn how to steward technology on their own. And so that for me was really the aha moment. When I got done writing this book God technology in the Christian life, I realized, okay, all of a sudden now I can see technology as a stewardship and now I can see the pros and cons of what I own and what I should have or shouldn't have based on the calling that I've been given to love God with everything that I am and to love my neighbor as myself. And now all, so it sort of pushed it, it pushed against my parenting, which was always sort of that stage one parenting. You can't have that gadget. Don't get that app. Don't look at that thing. Don't be online, you know, at this, this, you know, too long. It was always the no, 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 no. And then I could flip that after I sort of thought through. through. Through God's relationship to human technology, I, I flipped that conversation and realized that I can parent from stewardship. What is it about the smartphone that's redeemable? What of it is sinful, but what of it will conform to our calling to love God and to love others as ourselves? And so that really changed sort of how I viewed uh, parenting in the digital age. It's, it's about that stewardship. And so what I'm encouraging parents and educators to do is to move from that stage one, the algorithm made me do it, move into the stage, stage two, like what are the longings inside of me? And then stage three, gratitude for the gifts. And then stage four, getting into the stewardship component, because that's then when you can begin to envision young Christians to go into the tech industry, to make an impact at Facebook, at Google, at Tesla. Um, I was just in Silicon Valley a couple of weeks ago meeting with uh, uh, Christian students at UC Berkeley. Uh, I mean, there were 250 to 300 students who showed up to worship God and to sing his praise. And we did a Bible study out of Job, of all places. And it was amazing to see because these are the students six months to a couple of years from now who are going to be at Tesla. They're going to be at Apple. They're going to be at Google, Microsoft, VMware. They're going into those places to be computer uh, computer developers and computer programmers. And it was amazing to see. And I, I realized like there's a stewardship thing that we've got to get uh, figured out here in the church. And, and we're a long ways from that, I think, in the conversation of... No smartphone, just flip phone. Like That's just such a long way away from envisioning young Christians into the tech industry.
0: Well, and we're going to get in after the break to the very, I think, more practical side of how do we actually help steward that. It occurs to me as you're explaining this that really the heart and soul of classical Christian education, especially in the upper school and the rhetoric stage, is really allowing hard issues to come at our students and give them a forum to to process that biblically, theologically, and ask those questions. And that's exactly what you're advocating is let's, let's come back to uh, really uh, let's figure out what to do with it. Not just toss it out the window before we get to the practical. So some of what you call in the book, the gospel of technology, I mean, there's a tension in which we, we can uh, trade the the gospel of Christ for a gospel of technology. And we end up in this mm-hmm. sort of illusion of control. Talk a little bit more about what you're, you're explaining there.
1: Yeah. So it's not all, um, it, it's not all positive. Yeah, there's there's challenges that we have to address with technology. And the biggest one is that um, humans have always put their hope and trust in technology. This goes back to Psalm, Psalm 20. Some trust in chariots, some trust in tanks, some trust in ballistic missiles, but we will trust in the name of the Lord. That's Psalm 20. That's always been the challenge, especially in wartime. When some leaders are saber-rattling and they've got a big old weapon, it's very easy to say, well, let's put our trust in more, bigger weapons. And God says, no, put your trust in me because I'm sovereign over all of it. I'm sovereign over the war tech. And so that um, that is really at the core of the struggle between um, – a rebel, sinful humanity and God's church is that we are not going to go to our tools. We're not going to go to our technologies to find our security. But that is the case in the world. The world is going to turn to technologies. The world is going to turn to anti-aging tech uh, to try and beat uh, the death clock within ourselves, to try and evade death. I mean, we've got transhumanism, this idea that we can escape death by some engineering feat. And that's just part of this long story to be told about how man so easily puts his uh, blind trust in the hands of the technocrats to say, save me, be my redeemer. And so there is a misuse of technology. And it's, it correlates exactly with the actual gospel. And you can set them side by side. You've got origin stories. You've got fall. You've got redemption. You've got eschatology. You've got a nature of faith. Like both of them run concurrently. And so we want to avoid the gospel of technology. We're not putting our hope and trust ultimately in technology. We're not putting, putting our hope and trust in the technologists to get us out of death. We've got a savior who died for us to beat the grave. And so once you have eyes to see that, then the question is, again, okay, now we have a stewardship. What do we do with it? Yeah.
0: You have a great line. Society often embraces new innovations while wearing wearing ethical blinders, galloping straight without asking what path the technology might be on in the first place. And I think that's a great visual image of just, you know, the new iPhone's out. Let's go grab it. Never really asking the harder questions uh, of the theology behind it. why don't we take a quick break? I want to come back because I really do want to get into these. You've got fourteen ethical conv- convictions of how do we really, uh, quoting Schaefer there, I guess. How then shall we live with this? We we've got to really be eyes wide open as we both celebrate the goodness of it and the risk within it. But uh, let's take a quick break and we'll be right back with Tony Rinky. How can books help lead us toward holiness? In her new book, The Scandal of Holiness, award-winning author Jessica Hooten Wilson explains that learning to hear the call of holiness requires cultivating a new imagination, one rooted in the act of reading. Literature has the power to show us what a holy life looks like through the example of saints found throughout great literature. The Scandal of Holiness includes devotions, prayers, art, and more to help readers cultivate a saintly imagination. Get your copy today at JessicaHootenWilson.com. Welcome back. Uh, Tony, as we've uh, talked here at the first part of this, there's a lot of call just to uh, really ask the hard questions about where's where's technology as far as its connection to Scripture. And again, super grateful for your book because it's, it's steeped in Scripture, and there's a lot of, I think, very practical ways to understand that kind of the theology of technology. But I want to shift now to just the, the kind of the practical execution, and again, not to fall back into the which filters should we put in our house, but under this idea of how, how then shall we live with this and the ethical convictions that you've you've proposed in the book, especially for our children growing up in an age of artificial intelligence. And as you've said in the book, quote, you know, it's, it's potent with poisons out there. How do we wisely uh, live life in this technical world?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing to to realize is that God is in sovereign control of Silicon Valley. He reigns over every square inch. And I think as I've pressed into this conversation on tech in the church, what I've uncovered is more and more Christians who have sort of a godless view of technology, where once you start talking about technology, God just gets shoved out of the conversation. He's a non-factor. You can read a lot of Christian books, uh, fiction and non-fiction. Um, by believers who want to address technology, and God never comes into play. You never learn anything about him. You never uh, see his greatness, his sufficiency. He's just always kind of in the background. And um, I think that's been the case for a long time, and it just raises all sorts of challenges. Like, do we actually have the resources as Christians to live in this technological age? I think that it, there's that doubt that sort of hangs over us. Uh, like, maybe God didn't prepare us for this. And the answer to that is he did. He gave gave us his son and he gave us his word. And so what I wanna do with this new book is really, what I was doing with 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You is trying to instill in Christians the confidence that the Bible has the answers for the digital age. And I I don't remember how many Bible texts I used in 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, but I think it was like 400 or something like that. I mean, it was a lot to show. Like Jesus was talking about lots of these things before uh, TikTok came around. And so I want to do the same thing, but now looking more broadly at um, not only social media and digital media, not only smartphones, but now looking at the much broader context of medical innovation and um, driverless cars, electronic cars, uh, nuclear-powered cities, and things like that, and to, to ask the question, does the Bible have answers for our biggest questions? And it does. I mean... There's basically a list that I put in the book of of questions that come up over and over throughout the years. These are perennial questions. You know, where do we find happiness? That's always been a question. It always will be a question. Uh, What value is there in the material body, even a broken one? We all have broken bodies. Is there value in this? Or should we try to shed it and live the sort of immaterial existence like the transhumanists want us to pursue? Uh, What does it look like for our souls to flourish? in a very materialistic culture like the one we have today uh what does it look like to care for the health of our bodies what's too far in that what does it look like to love the poor and to not exploit them uh what role does vocational purpose play in human flourishing like isn't having a job something essential to our identity and what happens if ai and robots take 50 percent of our jobs in the next 40 years um What does it mean to be married? What does it mean to be a parent? What does it mean to love others? What does it mean to be a fetus, um, a person at conception? What does it mean to be a woman and not a man? Uh, What does it mean to kill an enemy in war? Uh, Why do we preserve personal privacy? Why do we preserve religious liberty? Uh, What does it look like to pursue justice for our neighbor? Those perennial questions just come up over and over and over and over and they will in the, the technological age um, because these are the perennial questions that will always be raised. When we talk about drones, when we talk about facial recognition, when we talk about smartphones, when we talk about driverless cars, all of these ethical questions will always be on the table. Um, you know, Especially when you can, cha- you can change the appearance of your gender medically. You can't really change your gender, but you, could, you can change the outward appearance of your gender Um, So what do we do with that? And those are questions that are going to just push us back into Scripture, not away from it. And so I want to give people an assurance. If you've read my book, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You, I think you probably already know this, but this book, um, God, Technology, and the Christian Life, is stepping in and saying it again. The Bible is so relevant to address all these questions that uh, our new technologies raise.
0: So practically, with the fourteen ethical convictions, I mean, it sounds like this would be a really helpful tool for an educator or a parent to maybe work through them systematically. Uh, to your point, in twenty twenty two, the technology that we're wowed by now is going to feel like, you know, VCRs in another twenty years in terms of. Yeah. So we've got a lot, and, and what's coming is, to your point, going to be even more confusing potentially, and and its complexity and its uh, its allure. So is that is that. I mean, as far as like just blocking and tackling, maybe walking through in classrooms and in homes these convictions so that we've got this kind of universal principles built in for whatever tech is coming.
1: yeah, and this is what the the book is trying to lay out the first and foremost is that what we need is a foundation that understands God's relationship to human city building. Um, that I think is is what's typically missing um in, in a lot of Christians when they try to address technology, because the story of God's uh relationship to human cities and God's relation to human technology is the same story. And so, in one sense, before we get into the real practicals, it's really important to look from Genesis four to Revelation 18 and look at God's relationship to human city building, because that that's the storyline that gives us the foundation to understand everything else about tech. And so that's primarily what this book is is trying to do is lay out that biblical theology of the city um, from Babel and uh, Babylon to the seven, ser- seven churches in the seven cities in Revelation 2 to 3 and why we live in cities, why we can live in cities as Christians with a good conscience. Um, and why, you know, why is the Amish and the Mennonites have said, you know what, we're stepping out of the city. We're withdrawing ourselves Well, we all have to withdraw ourselves from the cities of man at some point. Revelation 18 talks about that with Babylon. Um, and so it's a matter of timing. When do we evacuate the city? And if those, if those sort of pillars are not set in place, it's really hard to have a conversation about tech in general. So that very, I was just having a conversation this morning with a friend and he was like, If we had a conference about technology, what should it be on? It's like, we we need to go back to foundations. And he said, okay, what's the foundation that is undergirding the entire tech conversation? And I said, it's the biblical theology of God's relationship to the cities of man. It's a complex relationship. It's absolutely essential to understand. Um, And if you don't get that, you're just not going to understand any of the other conversations, I think, about technology. So yes to the applications, but get that foundation right. And that's what you'll get in this new book. From there, then all the implications follow because now you're just watching to see what what does man try to do in the city what does God allow in the city what does he condemn in the city and what is the church's relationship to city building and culture and things like that so it's really it's a really helpful conversation not only for technology but also just industry in general and culture making and what is our place in the city as Christians and how do we how do we sort of undermine the uh, hubris of the city by our hope and by our faith and by our worship, because it gets back to the local church. Like the local church is this incredibly potent countercultural movement within any city. And God says, you know, when I, where I have fifty faithful believers, or forty-five, or forty, or thirty-five, or thirty, or twenty-five, they are eleven in that city. I will not bring my. I will withhold my judgment from that city for now. I will relent my wrath because there are Christians there. Yeah. So we play an incredible role as a leavening influence in the cities and uh, by our hope and our worship. And so the local church also becomes, again, this is true in all my books, but the local church plays an incredibly central role in all of this.
0: The idea of what satisfies us, I know Piper talks a lot about that, and and you've said in the book, tech is too weak to satisfy the desires of humanity. It seems like at the deepest level, if we could somehow have the ability to self-regulate and say that I'm not going to be satisfied by this, whatever it may be. I think the challenge, Tony, for us, especially in the classical Christian school movement, is we talk a lot about the shaping of affections back to Edwards or Mm -hmm. um, the idea of if we can sort of win the 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 loves battle what do our students love what our children love then we've kind of won that the problem is that it's this it seems so unfair at times it's like having mm-hmm. a grammar school child with a bowl of fruit loops in front of them versus a, bro- a bowl of broccoli yeah. right. the fruit loops are always going to win this the the screen is always going to win over potentially the broccoli or in our case we get to control seven forty five to three but at three oh one I call you know the three oh one problem cyclops and one eyed screen monster comes out yeah. that's the battle for this deepest satisfaction how can we is it just a matter of continually reinforcing the broccoli if you will i mean what what's going to help us there
1: yeah so in stage one again that stage one element is you know the app makes us do it and you got you move beyond that and not and you say well the loves are not just this blank slate and we're trying to inform the blank slate but they've already been sinfully wired to want what's lurid and so What I try to do, especially in 12 ways, is what I I have a line in there where I say that the smartphone is a black mirror projecting into your eyes in 4K color what your heart most wants. And so there is a there's an existential moment, I hope, that readers have, all Christians have when they realize the stuff that I'm looking at on my screen is not there by accident and it's not merely the. Silicon Valley's fault for putting it there. I want it. I want it. And so if that's vanity, if that's pornography, if that's whatever that is, there has to come a point in in time in all of our lives when we realize that the smartphone is a mirror of the human heart. My longings are being projected on the screen back into my eyes. And that is if the spirit is at work, there's going to come a moment when you realize, whoa, that's a picture of what my heart most wants. And so from that then, we begin to understand that uh, this struggle is a struggle within myself. It's not a struggle against Silicon Valley. Yes, we need limits. Yes, we need to limit device access to kids. I'm not saying everyone should have a smartphone. Um, I I know adults who say, I don't need a smartphone. I I shouldn't have a smartphone because they know that there's this two-pronged battle, right? You've got to the, the alcoholic has to keep alcohol out of the house, um, and, and so we understand that, and that's true with, with smartphones as well. Um, but there's also that that heart longing that has to be addressed, and, and and until we realize the desperation that we have within, that we really need the Spirit to break these desires, um, there's not a whole lot of hope. I mean, you can put a lot of limits in, in place, but ultimately that has to come from the Spirit. We have to be awakened to the fact that that sin is there. That we need to be saved from ourselves, our own desires. Um, and, and, and that's a gospel work. And so, yes, we need to do that layer one discernment. What are these devices going to do to my kids? Then we need the layer two questions of what, ought, what naturally has the, our, our kids' hearts. And then we move into the gratitude and then move into the stewardship. I think we have to do all four of those levels at the same time. I don't think it's just about limiting. It's not just about addressing the heart. It's about um, having a vision for technology, and that begins with us as parents. Is like, why do I have a smartphone? Well, I've got to articulate that to my kids. Like, why, why does Dad have a smartphone? It's because this is how I serve. This is the the way that God is, um, has has gifted me is to be in a certain platform and to be in a certain place and to love and to serve others and to pour myself out for others. If I didn't have that job, maybe I wouldn't need. Um, The apps would need the devices, but I do. I have them as a stewardship. And so it's very similar with money, right? Like if you gave your kid a million dollars and said, buy whatever you want, that's probably not going to go well for any kids inside the church or out, right? So we have to have limits there, but we also have to show that if if it was buying all of this ridiculous stuff with that million dollars, that shows something about what they think is going to make them happy right? And so we're always teaching stewardship. And, and the way you do that is to say every penny that mom and dad have is a penny that came from God. It's his, his stewardship to mom and dad. And now we, we purchase things and we invest in things and we give to things because we are stewards of that money. Money can destroy your life. If you use it improperly, but it can glorify God and serve your neighbor if it's used rightly. And so in that sense, really, technology is an extension of money. And that, that I mean, that's why uh, the more, uh, you know, the more wealthy a culture is, the more technologies it has. It's basically an expression of wealth. Uh, in fact, Herman Bobbing, the theologian in 1920, said that. I mean, the only reason why a culture has advanced technology is because God has gifted that culture with lots of wealth. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and as you're saying that, what I hear you articulating that it's the first time I've really heard someone speak into this, which is, again, there's a spirit of gratitude and acknowledgement of appreciation that this is a is a good thing from God when properly yes. aligned. And I think this is what's, you know, you're, I'm sure you're familiar with Thomas Chalmers, the-, the, uh, the who Explosive wrote, Power, yeah. Of A New Affection. And his, yep. you know, and what his, obviously what he's getting at is you can't persuade people by reminding them of the vices you've got to show them the virtues and and I think it's it's a beautiful thing to be able to show as you are in your book that technology has a place that there can be gratitude for the device it's not just let's all burn our phones in the parking lot and go back and read our bibles so that that sort of moving the persuasion of the the shaping of the loves towards it's a it's a battle of the affection and so it's not let's just go read the great books and therefore that will be a stronger love than the love you have for your phone. But anyway, I think it's a, it's a healthy, albeit very challenging balancing act.
1: So it is, it is. Yeah. And the, the the digital age just shows if, if God doesn't have your child's heart, the world will. Now that's always been the case, but in the digital realm, you see that more immediately and more potently, but that's always been the case. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, that's been the case since the parable of the four soils. Mm-hmm. you know right you can just be so busy with life and um the parable of the wedding feast as well is you know like i can't come to the wedding you know i've got to go trade some oxen you know yeah. like good <laughs> like that's that's a good thing to do you know, trade and to do business but if your life is all business you're lost sure and if your life is all full of just um all all the demands of life and that's all you ever think about is just the to-do list um Jesus says in the parable of four soils, you're lost. I mean, the, Satan is taking the gospel out of you if, if it doesn't have your affection, if it doesn't have your attention. And so that's always been true. Um, it's just uh, in the digital age, we feel, I think, the the more, the, the the urgency of just how appealing this world really always was. Because now our kids can find anything they want on their screen. Um, even if you have, you can have all sorts of controls and things. There's there's ways to work around those controls. And so, and even even there, I mean, so many parents I talk with, you know, their their son's first exposure to pornography was on the phone of a friend, on a school bus, right, at the friend's house, you know. So even if your your kid has a device with all these limits, their friend maybe doesn't, you know. And so it's like you can't you can't just do that stage one, put saran wrap around our kids. I mean, they've got to be prepared for this world, and they've got to realize what the stakes are. The stakes are for your heart. Who's going to win? Who who has your loves? Who has your affections? And so if you're teaching the explosive power of a new affection, that is so important. I mean, that is the lesson every person needs to understand that the way we turn away from the, the lurid, powerful tendencies of the world is through something that's greater. And that that greatness can only be found in Jesus Christ. And so Props to you. You've got to continue to press on that and make that really clear, even though as a parent, as teachers, it's going to be absolutely impossible for us to regenerate someone. (laughs) That is the work of God, but we can continue to preach and say with our lives, yeah, the world has a lot to offer you. The world has a lot of wealth to offer you and power and sex and pleasure and opulence, but you know what? There's a greater pleasure found in Jesus Christ, and you've got to be willing to live that out uh, in your testimony. Um, which is it puts the onus back on us to as adults to to live that out uh, in front of our kids
0: well it's a it's a powerful and encouraging reminder again of teaching us really to self-regulate through life which we all need and to be able to constantly uh, assess what, what what do I do with this opportunity there's a blessing in it and there's a cursing and if I don't get this right it could it could again be be very dangerous so um, kind of final question for you personally I mean as you've gone through you've written, you know, multiple books on technology, this one in particular. How has it changed just your own uh, engagement with technology? Do you self-limit in a different way? Do you, do you look at technology differently just in your own day-to-day life?
1: Yeah, this was really, I spent 2015 um, doing that, I mean, taking digital detoxes, and that was really the precursor to what I wrote about in 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. It was my, it was just kind of the story of my year in 2015 of stepping away from particularly digital media smartphones live sports video games like anything that was was taking my time away i just stepped away from it and said i'm gonna take a break from this and see if there are better things that i can fill my life with and so it came out of that 2015 experience came the 2017 book 2019 book and now this book and so that's that's that was This has been a uh, seven-year journey for me, really, starting in 2015 to 2022, moving through those stages, moving through those steps, one, two, three, four, and being now at a place where I can now uh, view everything in my life with discernment and, and with stewardship. Like, okay, why do I have a car? Why do I have fuel? Why do I have electricity, cameras, lights, computers, recording equipment? Why do I have all this? It's because I've been put here with a purpose to treasure christ with everything that i am and to love my neighbor as myself and that now becomes the stewardship that then governs when i discern like okay do we need a new tv do we need a new iphone do we need a new car you know the, the, the question is well does it serve the purpose that god has put on my life and so that stewardship is is now sort of something that's come at the expense of seven years of thinking about all of this and uh, i hope it doesn't take that long for Christian educators and parents to to sort of move there, but I do think the church is kind of stuck at that stage one, and so I'm trying to encourage the stage two, the stage three, the stage four, uh, because it's it's amazing to view technology as a, a stewardship of a gift, kind of like we talked about with money, uh, as very very similar, and uh, it just changes parenting, changes personal um, personal view of consumerism and and the challenges and the dangers of the cities that we have that we live in. And that's one of the things I learned as I wrote this book is that you know, when it comes to technology and what technologies we should use and not use, realizing there's uh, inherent biases and tendencies within the platforms that we use. Uh, Facebook has its own biases towards like fringe thinking. Um, if you do more of the fringy thinking kind of thing, you're you're going to get a big following. Instagram, if you're willing to show more of your body, you're going to get a bigger following. Twitter is more of like this sarcasm, quick wit. If you have that, you're going to be big on Twitter. So each of those platforms have these biases that push you to conform to. To it, And you have to know that and realize that. But what I realized as I was studying Revelation 2 and 3 is that that is the exact same paradigm for all of our cities. Each city has its own sinful biases and um, uh, uh, idolatrous tendencies. That was true of Ephesus, Philadelphia, all of those cities in Revelation 2 and 3 have those biases built in. And so what I started to realize is like, if your conscience is fine with you living inside of a city, I live in the city of Phoenix. I My conscience is okay with that. I see the tendencies. I see the idolatries towards retirement, comfort, and toys. This city is full of retirees seeking comfort, wanting lots of sun and golf and having toy. I mean, my neighborhood is full of toys. I mean, we've got four-wheelers and we've got sand rails and dirt bikes and you name it, jet boats. Uh, one of my neighbors down the street has a, a, a Ferrari Huracan. I mean, it's a, like a $500,000 car. He's in the ammo business, which tells you something about the state of America. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is, middle class, this is a middle class neighborhood. This is, not a, this is not a wealthy neighborhood. It's like, well, how did you? And you made the connection. It's like, oh, yeah, you deal in, in firearms and ammo. <laughs> um, so that explains yeah. that. But, you know, like these to- this city is full of toys, full of comfort, full of uh, vision of retirement um, that I've got to push against. Um, if I'm going to protect my own soul and live for a a world that I cannot see. And so that's the same, whether we're dealing with apps or whether your child is living in a city without a smartphone, we're all going to deal with the sinful biases and the tendencies of this world. And so that's, um, um, yeah, I, I just don't think doing away with technology resolves that it's the same problem. Unless you go with the Amish and Mennonite decision and they say, we're out of the city. And it's like, I respect that yeah. <laughs> because at some point every Christian, every believer is going to be called out of the city of man. And that might be revelation eighteen four at the end. And you may by your conscience be like, you know what? I'm taking my family out of the city. Um, I think parents have the right to do that. Um, although it's hard to get out of the city now when, The whole world is digitally, you know, it's like the the world is one Babylon. I mean, it's essentially eschatological, but um, those tendencies are all there. They've been there since the parable of the four soils they're gonna to continue to be there whether we uh, adopt technology or not. We have to deal with them. We have to uh, press into the expulsive power of a new affection because that is that is the trump, that's the trump card. That's the ace in the hole, man. Yep. Um, and just keep pressing on that because that, there's nothing more precious than Christ. There's absolutely right. nothing that is more worthy of your attention than Jesus Christ. Right. If in the transfiguration, God looks down and says, there's my son in whom I am well pleased, he is enough for us to be pleased and to be happy. Amen.
0: Well, and that's that's the. I can't imagine trying to compete with all of these other affections were not yeah. for Christ. I mean, it's the only it's the only road out. And, it's the only way. And we yep. have it. It's great. And I appreciate you taking seven years on this technology pilgrimage to give us a perspective we may have never found on our own, and and to be able to equip ourselves and our and our children and our students to be able to discern wisely. And so thank you so much. There's so much more we couldn't get to. I cannot encourage folks to go out and get your book enough. Um, Amazon obviously is a place to go. Any other suggestions for your resources? Because we definitely want to point people towards you.
1: No, just the books. They can be purchased at Westminster Books if you want to support a Christian bookstore. And then obviously they're uh, available at Amazon.
0: Absolutely. Well, Tony Rickey, thank you so much for your words of wisdom, encouragement to us. I I know you're in in a season of prolific writing. So we look forward to having you back when the next book is out. And thank you for encouraging us in classical Christian schools with parents and and teachers. Thank you again.
1: Mm -hmm. My joy. Thanks, Davies.
0: Hey, Basecamp Live listeners. This is Hannah, Davies' daughter here. Thank you for tuning into this episode. I can confidently say that my kindergarten through college classical Christian education has become a critical part of my life. It formed and trained me to be a strong leader. To love God. And now, as a married young adult, it's really created a foundation for me to go out into the world, a world that's getting crazier by the day. So, thank you for listening to this podcast. It's absolutely critical what's being discussed here. If you could take a moment and send an email to infobasecamplive.com, let us know where you're from, where you're listening, what's on your mind. We're so grateful that you're part of this Basecamp Live community. Thank you for being here. Please do tell a friend and give a five-star rating on your podcast listening platform. Thank you so much. See you next time.